He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will live securely. And from, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth, and he will be their peace. When the Assyrian invades our land and marches through our fortresses, we will raise against him seven shepherds, even eight leaders of men. They will rule the land of Assyria with the sword, the land of Nimrod with drawn sword. He will deliver us from the Assyrian when he invades our land and marches into our borders. The remnant of Jacob will be in the midst of many peoples, like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass, which do not wait for man or linger for mankind. The remnant of Jacob will be among the nations in the midst of many peoples, like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among the flocks of sheep, which mauls and mangles as it goes and no one can rescue. Your hand will be lifted up in triumph over your enemies and all your foes will be destroyed. In that day, declares the Lord, I will destroy your horses from among you and demolish your chariots. I will destroy the cities of your land and tear down all your strongholds. I will destroy your witchcraft and you will no longer cast spells. I will destroy your carved images and your sacred stones from among you. You will no longer bow down to the work of your hands. I will uproot from among you your Asherah poles and demolish your cities. I will take vengeance in anger and wrath upon the nations that have not obeyed me. Then we'll turn from there to Luke chapter 2, and now it's the verses 4 and 5. Luke 2, page 1590-1590. In our pew Bibles, we saw last time the verses 1 through 3, Caesar Augustus and his decree of the Roman world and what that all meant. And now the verses 4 and 5. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. As for the reading of God's holy word, may the Lord now bless that word to our understanding. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know what some of the largest companies in our world do? They used to build things. The biggest companies, GE, GM, these enormous companies would build things. You know what the biggest companies in our world do now? They advertise things. Google is essentially an advertising company. I know it does other things as well, but essentially advertises. Facebook is really, or Meta as it's now called, is really just one enormous advertising company. Even Apple is really just an excuse to advertise. And that tells you something about the effectiveness of ads. Obviously, advertising works. Advertising has its intended effect. Whatever else we might say about the world in which we live, we know this, that the world knows how to convince us to spend our money. And why is it? Or how is that? How is it that the world so easily gets us to buy the things that, that they show to us on our Facebook feed, on our Instagram feed, on 
any of our social media or TVs. Why, why is Instagram such a very powerful form of advertising? Why are Instagram influencers so, a ver- so very powerful a media form? The answer is that they inspire us. They, they are what we want to be. They're what we want to look like, sound like, act like. They're what we want. That's why companies use celebrities to endorse their products. You don't want just some regular neighbor of yours telling you that this product is worthwhile. You want a movie star or an athlete to tell you that. Not because you trust them. You don't trust them any more than you trust your neighbor. But because you want to be like them. You want to have something of that glory, something of that kind of of adulation. If it's good enough for him, it's good enough for me. That's why celebrity is such a powerful force in our world. Celebrities are what we aspire to be. Now, I mention this only because I want to ask this question. What if following that influencer, what if succumbing to all those ads not only sets your life down the wrong path, but makes it impossible to achieve what you want? Think of what you want. You want happiness. You want success. You want relationships. You want family and friends. Whatever it is that you want. What if Instagram ensures, guarantees, you won't get it? Think of it this way. Think of you're walking through a desert somewhere. And all of a sudden, you're, 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 you're of course, needing water. You're needing some kind of... And you see then uh, an oasis in the distance. You see this shimmering water and you think, oh, I'm saved. And so now you're going to uh, run to this oasis only to discover, of course, that it's a mirage, that it keeps moving, that you, you never get to it. And in fact, now because you've run to go after this mirage, you've used more of your energy that you can't replace and you're farther off the beaten track than you would have been if you'd stayed on the path that you were on. The mirage actually makes your life worse. It actually gets you to go further away from blessing, not closer to it. What if Instagram, what if Facebook, what if Google, what if our world is that? Promising, but never providing. Only ensuring anxiety, frustration, discouragement, pain. Now, I suppose it's a little bit much to suggest that our entire world is a bit of a problem. What other option do we have? What other path can we walk on? What other world can we live in? Well, there is this passage in our text. Joseph and Mary, donkey or not, making their way to Bethlehem. And that's another way. So we've already seen that there's a plan in motion. Caesar Augustus has been moved by God. He didn't know that, but we do. To start the world moving. And all of the pieces on this chessboard or on this this landscape have begun to, to make their moves. Including the ones that need to. The ones for whom all of this was done. Joseph and Mary. 
Now, we don't exactly know when Joseph and Mary made their journey. We'd like to think, of course, that it's towards the end of her pregnancy. We all, I suppose, have that picture in our minds of Joseph leading the donkey with a very pregnant Mary on its back. And since Mary did spend the first three months of her pregnancy with her cousin Elizabeth, obviously they moved to Bethlehem either in the second or in the third trimester. And you can imagine that they would have gone more towards the end. This was an inconvenience to them. This was a movement away from their work and their society and their cultural uh, community. So you can imagine that they would have done this at the last possible moment, and maybe that's why we perceive of it that way. We just don't know. It, it is just the way we seem to think it. And, and they go together, presumably, even though Luke tells us that they were only pledged to be married, they go together presumably because they were living as though they were married. That's at least something of what Matthew's gospel implies or suggests to us. You'll remember that Matthew's gospel reminds us about how the angel came to Joseph and said, don't be afraid to take Mary to to yourself as her wife because that which is in her is of the Holy Spirit. You're to name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And then Joseph woke up from that dream, Matthew tells us, and did exactly as the angel had told him. He took Mary to be his wife, but he did not know her. And so to guard her from shame, to guard her from the obvious uh, implications of her being pregnant out of wedlock, it is possible to imagine that Joseph and Mary were living together, or at least appearing to live together as husband and wife, though they were not yet husband and wife. And so they go together. That's what they would have done had they been married, so they go together to Bethlehem to Bethlehem, because that's Joseph's hometown. Remember, there's this census. He's got to go back to where he's from, and he's from the town of David. Except that's not the town of David. The town of David is Jerusalem. Now, for what it's worth, Luke actually does say in the original language, the city of David, although town is a reasonable translation because Bethlehem was so small, it really wasn't a city. Yet Luke uses the exact same words that the Greek version of the Old Testament use whenever they describe, not whenever, but when, at various points along the way when they describe Jerusalem. The words city of David are applied to Jerusalem. So 1 Chronicles 11 verse 7 tells us that when Day, or that David called Jerusalem the city of David. And there are a number of times after that where that's the case. And you can understand why that would be. Jerusalem was the capital of Israel. Jerusalem was the place where David built his temple, or rather where David built his palace and where Solomon built the temple. Jerusalem was the city that ruled all of Israel and from which came the blessing and the goodness of God to all the world around them. This was the city of David. Bethlehem was where David was born, Bethlehem was where David was raised and where he shepherded the flocks. But that wasn't his city. That was the city of bread. That's what that name means. Jerusalem's the city of David. So why does Luke get it wrong? Well, of course, Luke doesn't get it wrong. We know that because he's inspired by the Holy Spirit. And because David did come from Bethlehem, and I suppose we could then say Bethlehem's the city or the town of David. And Micah does promise, that's why we read from Micah 5, that the Messiah would come from Bethlehem. 
In fact, that becomes a bit of a point, doesn't it, in the, in the narrative of Jesus' birth? The wise men come from Babylon. They say there's been a king born. Where was he going to be born? And Herod says, what do you mean, king? And then he calls the, the wise men of Israel to say, where's this king supposed to be born? And they say, well, Bethlehem, because that's what Micah says. And so then Herod, of course, kills the boys of Bethlehem. But notice that when Micah tells us that the Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem, he tells us that he's going to be born there precisely because it's so humble. He, he calls Bethlehem the smallest, you might say the most insignificant of the clans of Judah. In a place that you wouldn't expect, in a place that you would never imagine so great and august a person, the rest of Micah, tells us about how majestic and how wonderful and how amazing this Messiah is going to be. You'd never imagine such a one being born in so insignificant a backwater. Indeed, it seems when we read Micah that the contrast between the humility of the place and the greatness of the king is intentional. Micah wants us to see that this mighty Lord who would rule the world came from so small a place. And we ought to ask ourselves why that is. Why in the story of redemption did God want His Son to be born in a humble circumstance? Why not the great Jerusalem? And Jerusalem was great even at this time. It was great. Oh, it had been through its ups and downs. It had at its height been with Solomon the greatest city in the world. And it had been destroyed because of the exile, because of the Babylonians, the Assyrians. But it had been restored in many respects. Herod had come to the throne and he had built wonderful architecture there. The temple alone was glorious and good. Remember how the Disciples say to Jesus when they're walking out of the temple, look at these beautiful buildings. Jerusalem was a great city ruled by not an Israelite, by Herod. Now why would Herod be ruling Jerusalem at this time, Israel at this time? He wasn't an Israelite. He wasn't a son of Jacob. He was a son of Esau. And he was a representative of Rome. Why was Rome ruling Jerusalem at this point? That's not right. How did that happen? We know how that happened. Israel rejected their God. They'd forgotten the privilege that Jerusalem represented. They forgot that the real blessing of this city was not its buildings, but its occupant. God who dwelt within his temple. And they had they chosen to reject him. They, they, they said, we don't really need to believe in this God. We don't need to live for this God. Slowly but surely, you can imagine the, the generations moved away. They became comfortable. They became complacent. Their spirituality waned. Their commitment to Christ and, or to the, to the God who dwelt within the temple waned. And suddenly they found themselves following the other gods. And they found themselves thinking, you know, that's a pretty good way to live too over there. The Canaanites aren't altogether bad. They're good people and their religion should be respected too. And on and on it went. And soon enough, Jerusalem looked beautiful, but it was not at all beautiful. And it happened over and over again, didn't it? It happened time and time again. 
David sat in Jerusalem. Yes, Solomon reigned in Jerusalem to be sure. And then so did Jeroboam or Rehoboam and Ahab and all the other wicked kings. Jerusalem represented what could have been but never was. Jerusalem represented a certain worldly glory but a spiritual poverty. Jerusalem, in a sense, represented everything wrong with Israel. For God was to dwell among them. But they refused to live for this God. So God starts over. God starts over. He had called his king out of Bethlehem before. That line had moments of beauty and wonder, but had crumbled into nothingness in the end. And so now that he's going to send his son, God says, I'm going to bypass Jerusalem. I'm going to bypass its glory. I'm going to bypass its might. I'm going to bypass its architectural wonder. None of that is important to me. And he goes to this forgotten minor town, turning away from all the glory, beauty, and success that the world values, its powerful halls, its important people, its lavish lifestyle and home. And he says, that's not for me. And that's not what I've come to save. And he sends his son to a place of humility. And now we need to wrestle with that decision of God because it has implications for us too. Because God, by doing this, by sending Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem, is saying to the mighty, glorious Instagram influencers of this world, you're not the way. You're not valuable to me. You're not what matters. And now we're challenged to ask, do we adopt that same perspective? Do we see the world the same way? Is this also the kind of Savior we want? One who bypasses what our world counts as important. Do you need a Savior? Have you come to worship today because you want to worship a Savior who is so radically different than the world in which you live that He goes by it to a place of humility. Can you serve this God? One that isn't impressed by the accomplishments of men but desires obedience and real surrender and service? One that doesn't accept your credentials or accomplishments, but says, I'm going to save you from you. I'm going to do a new work, a glorious work that doesn't end in the broken down and tattered remains of a forgotten city. I'm going to do something that you couldn't do, wouldn't do, didn't do. I'm going to save you. Do you see your need for this, Messiah? As they bypass Jerusalem, as they go to Bethlehem, we are called to walk with them and to say, I too 
turn my back on these things. What's valuable to me is not the big city, the bright lights, the worldly things. What's valuable to me is Him born in Bethlehem. But who is He born in Bethlehem? Not just another person. He is a rather important person. Because Joseph and Mary, as Luke tells us, are on their way to Jerusalem, or to Bethlehem rather, uh, because Joseph belonged to the house and line of David. Because Joseph was a son of the king. Now it's important that we understand that Joseph genuinely was a descendant of David. Luke chapter 3 and then Matthew chapter 1 as well. Both describe for us in different ways, but still, the way in which Joseph was related to King David. And that's important, of course, because we know that the Messiah that's born, the child that is born, to his wife, his son, the son that he would adopt as father, the son of God, of course, conceived in the womb of Mary by the Holy Spirit, but born into the family of Joseph, this son would be an heir of David. He would be of the family, of the line of David. And that's important because he's the Messiah. And as Messiah, he's prophet, priest, and king. As king, he comes to rule the world. As king, he comes to sit upon the throne of his father. So all of that goes into the fact that Joseph is the father, the adopted father, you might say, the stepfather of this Messiah. The Messiah had to be born into a royal house, into this royal house. And yet, it wasn't much of a royal house, was it? Why was the lineage of David, Joseph, living in Nazareth? an even more backwater place than Bethlehem. Remember in John 1, verse 46, Nathanael says of Jesus, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Bethlehem was at least in the family. Jerusalem, of course, would have been better. Or maybe even some foreign land waiting for the moment to ripen so that the Messiah could burst onto the scene and say, here I am, come to save you. But what had happened to the family of David? His family had fallen into obscurity. There wasn't a king sitting somewhere in exile waiting to be restored to the throne. Did anyone know who the, throne, the heir to the throne was? And did anyone care? Was there any way to reestablish the Davidic line? Well, maybe the Israelites wanted to, and they may have wanted to, to be free, to be free from Rome's dominion, to be important again on the world stage, to have their own inspiring, powerful leader who would take them to glory, just like the nations around them. That's what Israel had wanted the first time they got a king, wasn't it? Their first king was a fulfillment of their desires. 
And their king was everything our world values. He was rich. He was tall and handsome. He was inspiring just to see. And Israel wanted just such a king, didn't they? They wanted someone that would look like every other king in the world. And they're not the only ones. We see the shiny lights and the smiling faces of our world and we sometimes wish we could be like them too. But it, it ends badly. It always ends badly. Because you can't defy God and win. We have been created to live in obedience to God, to live in fellowship with God. And we decided to rebel against our God, and that has brought us misery. All of the misery that you experience in this life is a consequence of that rebellion. And the only way we can be brought out of that rebellion is by a king. But not a king like the world's kings. An altogether different kind of king. Our king was born into a noble family, to be sure, but it had fallen into the most humble of circumstances. And yet it is for this family and from this family that Jesus would be born. And he would be born from them because God promised he would. A long time before, a long, long time before, when David was still alive, David was still king. Then God came to him after David had wanted to build the temple. You remember David had wanted to build a temple. Why am I living in my house and the Lord is living in a tent? I want to build the Lord a house. And then Nathan the prophet, you'll remember, or the prophet came to, to David. The Lord came to David through his prophet. And he said to David, you're not going to build me a house. I'm going to build you a house. And then he gave to David those rich promises. 2 Samuel 7 detailed these for us. Including that there would be a son of David upon the throne. There was this promise of a coming Messiah who would be the son of David, but would be the Lord of David too. Would be greater than David. Would not lead his people into sin would not lead his people in the midst of all of this misery, but rather would deliver them and draw them to the Lord. There would come a son who would obey, says, Jesus, says, the, says the Lord. And that son would sit upon the throne. And that son hadn't been born yet. That son was now about to be born because God keeps his promises, because God is faithful. That's what Christmas screams to us. That's what the birth of this Messiah declares in no or in unmistakable terms. Why was this baby born? Why did he come? Why is he now brought to Bethlehem in order to be brought forth into the manger? Why? Was he born to this humble couple in this humble place? Because God knew what we needed and promised to accomplish it by his power. 
not by anything that we can do, but entirely of His grace and goodness. God was starting over with a new king, a better king, one that would not lead us away from God and into slavery, but one that would lead us from God, or to God rather, and into freedom. That's what, that's what this a humble picture of this family making their way to Bethlehem testifies to us. It says to us that God is keeping His promise. He's going to save us from our sins. He's going to save us from our rebellion, from our slavery, from our chains. He's going to save us from our broken relationships, our addictions. He's going to save us from our arrogance and our pride. He's going to save us from our struggles and our sorrows. Not by inspiring us to be better. Not by being King Saul for us who makes us think that we can do it. That's not what Jesus comes to do. He doesn't come to motivate you to be a better person. He comes in the midst of your humility, in the midst of the humility of Joseph and Mary, in the midst of the brokenness and the disregard of David's house, and in the midst of all of that stump comes new life, a life that would grow to become a kingdom on this earth. God was starting over by His power. God was going to do now what we wouldn't and couldn't and don't. And that means that He was coming to change us, to renew us, to rebirth us, to change every part of us. And that's the king he sends. But is that the king you need? Is that the king you want? Is that the king you serve? Instagram influencers, work, Google, Apple, Facebook make billions of dollars because their advertising works. Because it speaks to the heart of men. Because it tells us we can do it. That we're good enough. That we too can be popular. We too can be beautiful. We too can be successful. Just pay me $9.99 and follow my program and you'll become rich. Advertising makes them rich. Because it draws us ever forward to an oasis that we can never reach. Our world is constantly tempting us, constantly drawing us forth, constantly promising us joy, blessing, happiness, success, and never delivering. But here's another way, a glorious way, a way of power, a way of success, a way of grace and goodness, a way of peace and understanding, a way of blessing upon blessing upon blessing. The only thing is, it's humble. It's not impressive. It's not Instagram worthy. It's just Jesus. Born to a young couple, an unremarkable couple, 
who could have said, well, we're from the line of David. We're nobility, but even that carried no cachet into a town that was nothing, Bethlehem. But in doing these things, God says, I have come to work a redemption, to start over a new king, a king that will change your heart, a king that will change your thinking, a king that will change your affections and your desires. I've come to redeem you. Is this the king you want? For this is the king born on Christmas morning. Let's ask him to work in our hearts. Shall we pray? Gracious God and Father, he's not what we'd expect. A humble king. Why would such a thing be true? When the kings of our world, Lord, when William and Kate have a baby, there's cameras everywhere. There's hushed excitement. There's anticipation. What will the name be? There's pomp and circumstance. But he was born in Bethlehem to this broken stump of a family. And so challenges us to see our need of just such a king. The worldly way doesn't work. Jerusalem doesn't work. Personal power doesn't work. Our only hope is in Him. Help us to see that today, Lord. Help us to see that in this Christmas season. Help us to rest in what He's accomplished. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.